let's turn once again in our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, This time chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 1 through 12. This morning while you're turning there, uh, just let me remind you that I'm trying to get in the habit of giving you uh, an outline of the sermon as well as some discussion questions in the back of your bulletin. Uh, I can't guarantee that there will be an outline every Sunday because it doesn't always work out that way. But uh, I will try to have discussion questions for you to to encourage us as a congregation uh, to use our time together on Sunday to think about God's Word. And so uh, hopefully these questions will uh, encourage you, whether it's at home or after service sometime, to talk about the passage and what it means uh, for our lives but you'll find that on page 7 this morning in your bulletin. Uh, But let's look now, Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 12, at uh, these laws for life. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, You shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting On the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Well, oxen, donkeys, mixed fabrics, rooftops, birds' nests, uh, men's clothing and women's garments. What's going on here? (laughs) What are these verses all about? And what holds these rules together? The answer is life himself. The purpose of these laws is not only to instruct us in a well-ordered life that 
is concerned about promoting and preserving life in all of its expressions and forms. Its, it, it, its ultimate purpose, however, is to, to bear witness to him who is life itself. It is in these seemingly odd and obscure laws that the eyes of faith begin to see the distinct features of our Lord's face. And here we behold the Lord of life who cares about the little things. The Lord of life who takes an interest in little birds and twisted threads. And so I want us to think about this passage today in two parts. First, laws of life. Secondly, life himself. Now we've mentioned this a few times already up to this point, that this section of Deuteronomy that we're currently in, running from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 26, loosely follows the order of the Ten Commandments. In other words, all of these laws are structured by the, the Decalogue. They loosely follow the order of the ten words. And so Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 13 deal with worship and idolatry and the place of God's name, expounding upon the first, second, and third commandments. And Deuteronomy 14 through 16 deals with community celebrations, the sabbatical year, the three annual festivals as expansions upon the Sabbath commandment. And Deuteronomy chapters 16 through 18 is about laws for leaders, including judges and kings and priests and prophets as an expansion upon the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, to honor authority figures. Now today we're at the end of a, a section about the sixth commandment, which not only prohibits murder, but also requires us to protect and to preserve life. We, we learn that there is so much more. We learn here in this passage that there is so much more to keeping the sixth commandment than just avoiding the obvious acts of homicide. The commandment also requires the holistic promotion of life in all of its expressions. And in this passage, this includes restoring lost animals, respecting sexual distinctions, refraining from wildlife exploitation, regulating building construction, and recognizing underlying symbolic distinctions. So let's briefly walk through each one of these laws for life, beginning with the restoration of lost or injured animals. Uh, first, in, notice in verses 1 through 4 how, how Moses not only commands God's people to care about one another, but also about lost and injured animals and your neighbor's stuff. Notice how this law promotes the life of both man and beast. I think the main point here in these verses is to counter the tendency that exists in all of our hearts to ignore the needs of others. 
In contrast to the impulse that we sometimes have to, to hide ourselves. That, that, is, that is actually what the Hebrew word for ignore means. It, it means to hide ourselves from and avoid the inconvenience of other people's problems. Like the, like the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan who passed by on the other side. This rule requires God's people to care. It requires them to look, to to take notice, and to get down in the ditch if necessary. It commands us to see things and to not close the door of our lives behind us, uh, ignoring our neighbors as we live our happy lives tucked away in our own castles. We must look and see and take notice, and, and not just of people, and not just of their animals, but anything that belongs to our neighbor. You know, we, uh, we've got chickens at our house now, and the kids adore them. Eli especially has a, an affection for them, so he's constantly going in and out of the fence to hold them, to check to see if there's eggs, or to just chase the rooster around because he wants to make sure he knows who's boss. Trouble is, Eli often forgets to close and lock the gate on his way out. And so very often the chickens escape and uh, enjoy themselves wandering around in our yard. And that happened this past week. And within minutes, unbeknownst to me it happened, and within minutes I received a text message from Jackie Kemp saying, hey, your chickens are running out in your front yard. She happened to be passing by. But providentially, I was working on this passage while she did that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. She took notice. And she cared enough to reach out and, and to make sure that the animals were being looked after. But carelessness and indifference is forbidden among God's people. And conversely, generous concern is commanded. Because the law of love demands it. So let me just ask you a basic question as we reflect on this first law of life. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Do you, do you look whenever your neighbor is in need? Are you willing to get down in the ditch? Or do you want to pass by on the other side? It doesn't have to be a sheep or donkey or chickens. It can, be, it can be anything. And this same command, get this, this same command even applies to our enemies. We have this same command given in the book of Exodus. And it says, if you see your enemy's donkey, you got to go out of your way to help. You may not ignore it. That's the first law for life. Let's take a look at the second one in verse 5 which requires us to respect the fundamental distinction that exists between men and women. It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, in a section of laws for life, this one which forbids cross-dressing, 
may initially seem out of place. What's it, what's it doing here? What's its relation to concern for life? Well, perhaps it's included here because a disregard for this fundamental distinction between men and women is nothing less than an assault on life itself. After all, it's out of this wonderful differentiation that exists between the sexes that new life is born, that new life comes into the world. So we can see this this really is a life issue because to break down and blur this distinction, which is so basic and so fundamental, it not only affects the world of sexuality, it affects life in the most basic biological sense of that word. Now, the language of abomination in verse 5, let's just be honest, it, it offends modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Today, it's an abomination to call this an abomination, isn't it? Isn't that interesting, the, the reverse holiness code that has been created in our secular society? But we have to recognize we're, we're not immune. And maybe this language bothers us. Maybe it rubs us the wrong way too. But if we're tempted to think that this is harsh, let's not forget that we live in a fine-tuned universe. That's true not only physically, it's also true morally and spiritually as well. The, the life we enjoy is, is held in a delicate balance that requires certain things. It requires many constants to be upheld in order for life to go on. I mean, that's, that's obvious to us, I think, in, in the physical realm. Let's never forget that we live on a big ball of blue and green that circles around a much bigger ball of fire at about 67,000 miles per hour. And if we were a little bit closer, a little bit farther away from the sun, life as we know it would not exist. And we, we don't question such observations about the fine-tuning of the physical universe we inhabit. We, we recognize things like the constant of gravity. If it were just a little bit off, life as we know it would be gone. And yet, the fine-tuning of the moral world is no less precise or important to life. And so to blur this distinction between the sexes is an abomination because it flaunts something fundamental to God's design for life. And this is, isn't it? This is exactly what our culture is intent on doing today. In a culture of death, and make no mistake about it, we are living in a culture of death. It's no surprise that we are hell-bent on blurring the distinction between men and women. We no longer recognize this utterly basic difference between the sexes. In fact, a report from the American Medical Association released not too long ago uh, <clears throat> declared that sex should no longer be included as a legal designation on birth certificates. That's the American Medical Association, folks. Do you think it's a problem for life when the healthcare experts 
don't recognize the importance of a recognizable, objective distinction between the sexes. Let's be clear. This is insane. This is crazy. As Paul says in Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, we have become fools. And we need to recognize the fact that this kind of foolishness will have far more than merely subjective or mental health consequences. Now, those consequences are important and they are sadly already self-evident. But it will be worse than that because this represents an objective threat to the public health and moral life of a society. And it represents judgment on a people who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have chosen to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, the third law for life, it's, it's in verses 6 and 7. It's a call to refrain from wildlife exploitation. So as if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. What's this law about? What's the purpose of this law? Is it primarily concerned about conserving human food sources, resources, or the compassionate treatment of animals? Now, in contrast to some commentators that I've read who seem to want to pit those two against each other, I, I think both are implied here. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. There's no reason to choose between the two. Just like the previous law, the first law about returning lost animals, this law promotes life for both man and creature, man and animal. The exploitation of wildlife is not good for human beings and it's not good for animals. But the compassionate treatment of God's creatures is good for both. It's good for animals and it's good for human flourishing. And as the concluding promise in verse 7 makes clear, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. That's the promise. That the welfare of both human beings and even some of the seemingly most insignificant and tiniest of God's creatures are in fact in God's order closely connected. I say that again because that was probably a really big run-on sentence. It's really remarkable, I think, when you stop and think about it, that God would, God would attach such a promise to the wise and compassionate treatment of little tiny birds. That it may go well with you and that you may live long is specifically attached to the treatment of Tiny birds. A connection is forged by God between the good of God's people and the well-being of these little creatures. We ought to reflect on that. We ought to think about the significance of that. And as we're thinking about it, I think you've got you've to say, this is one of the things that struck me this week as I was reflecting on these various laws, is you've got to love the way God's word refers refuses 
to be pigeonholed. No pun intended there, okay? God's word simply will not fit into our political categories of left or right, liberal or conservative. Right? The law offends liberals by saying cross-dressing is an abomination to the Lord, but it may also offend some conservatives who tend to be deeply suspicious of anyone who's concerned about the environment or the humane treatment of animals. But you see, the Bible, which begins with the story of creation and ends with the story of new creation, teaches us to adopt these concerns as our very own. As the psalmist declares, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 145, verse 9. Okay, now an expansion upon that. His mercy is over all that he has made, man and beast, you save, O Lord. God cares about man and beast, and we should too. This made me think about the, uh, the ending of the book of, of Jonah, you know, where God could have said, Jonah, these people don't know their left hand from they're right. They don't know an abomination from not an abomination. They don't know that they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But that's not how the book ends. It says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Did you ever consider the fact that God was concerned about the cattle in Nineveh? The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. Man and beast he saves. And the fourth law for life requires us to be, this is probably the one that's most familiar to us from the book of Deuteronomy. It requires us to be proactive in protecting life by taking safety precautions in building construction. Verse 8 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Evidently, uh, Israelites spent a great deal of time on the rooftops, flat rooftops uh, on their homes. But this domestic practice was accompanied with a danger. Someone could fall off and get seriously injured or even die. And so this ancient building code uh, served to protect life from accidental death. And failure to take these precautions amounted to criminal neglect. Right? That you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house. I think it's really easy for us to take this law for granted <clears throat> because it has so influenced Western society, Western civilization. But, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that our next door neighbors have a tall fence surrounding their in-ground pool. Otherwise, Liam, who's always on the move, right? You, you take your eyes off of him for a second and he's gone. He just disappears somehow. He could fall in and drown. It's interesting to compare Deuteronomy with other ancient societies and their law codes. 
because other ancient societies did not have laws like this. But that's because the God of life cares about life. And so should we in practical ways. And so we ought to reflect upon this law and think, how about my own property? How about my own assets? Does my home demonstrate a concern for the life of my neighbor? This law, I think, also teaches us that personal property rights are not absolute. Personal property rights are not absolute. <clears throat> Our property rights are limited. See, the responsibility of homeowners to protect human life by following <clears throat> certain safety regulations may even take precedence over personal design preferences. Think about that. What if you were an Israelite and you said, I, I don't want that on my roof. <laughs> you know, I, I want to express my individuality with how I design my rooftop. Thank you very much. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't because concern for life trumps personal preference. Uh, the fifth law for life in, in verses 9 through 12 teaches us to recognize certain symbolic distinctions. We're going to have to spend a little bit more time thinking about this one. Right? Mixed seeds, um, different animals being unequally yoked, and mixed fabrics, all of these things forbidden. What's this about? Well, we need to understand that the laws that God gave to ancient Israel were never merely pragmatic. They were never merely utilitarian. Sometimes they served a practical purpose, like not falling off of a rooftop. Uh, but sometimes they bore witness to something more. They bore witness to something greater. And the transcendent and symbolic significance of God's law, I think, is clearly seen in verses 9 through 12, which prohibit prohibits various types of mixtures and the tassels which Israelites were required to wear on their garments. And the purpose of these laws was not only to promote life, but to promote a holy and pure way of life. A life without mixture. As such, these laws provide a perfect segue between the Sixth Commandment's prohibition against murder and the seventh, seventh commandment and its prohibition against adultery. These rules forbid mixing, ungodly mixing, and they point to something bigger. Underlying these rules is a greater concern and priority for pure, unmixed devotion to the Lord. I'll just give you one example. Notice how Paul maps this law for plowing with different kinds of animals onto our own Christian experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Paul overlays this onto the Christian life when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You can't, you can't forge a life together with someone if you know the source of life and they don't. 
It's a fundamental contradiction. It's like oil and water. The two do not mix. It's like trying to hitch different animals to plow together. It doesn't work. And what about the tassels? Well, in the ancient world, the hem and tassels of garments were symbolic expressions of personal identity that, that communicated social status. Right? So kings and priests wore elaborate tassels and embroidered hems on the outskirts of their garments. It's not insignificant that Ruth, when she asked Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, she asked him to cover her with the fringe of his garments. Spread your wing over me. The symbolic importance of outer fringes of a person's personal, of the power of a person and social status of a person, I think it might be part of the reason why David felt so convicted when he cut, he tore off part of Saul's robe. Remember, he was cut to the heart after cutting the corner of King Saul's robe. Even though Saul was, Saul was trying to kill him, he was the Lord's anointed. And, and to touch that part of his garment was to strike, in a sense, at his royal identity. So he cut the robe, and he felt cut to the heart. It may also be why Saul seized and accidentally tore the skirt of Samuel's robe when God tore the kingdom away from Saul in 1 Samuel 15, right? When Saul heard that the kingdom was being taken away from him, that he'd no longer be king, he grabbed the corner of Samuel's garment and it was symbolically torn from him. See, the Bible teaches us to see the world in a, in a profoundly symbolic way, to have a sanctified imagination that has been baptized by the word of God. And we get an additional sense of the symbolic significance of hems and tassels. What Job says about God's work of creation in Job 26 verse 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? In other words, God is so great that all of creation is like a little thread hanging from the corner of his garment. Think about that. The Milky Way galaxy is like a little bell hanging from the Lord's robe. Now with this symbolic significance in view, I think it's remarkable to note that according to Numbers 15.38, ordinary Israelites were not only allowed to wear these ancient symbols of high social status and nobility, but were even commanded to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Now, this is remarkable because blue cords were among the most distinctive features of the priestly garments described in Exodus 28. Blue pops up in verse 5, 6, 8, 15, 28, 31, 33, and a cord of blue in verse 37. All of that in Exodus 28, where the priestly robes are being described. Okay, why am I, why am I bothering to tell you this? Well, note the connection. This means that the entire nation was to be visibly set apart 
as a holy people and a kingdom of priests who would be recognized and visibly distinct by what they wore, by what they wore. Now, I don't see any of you here this morning with tassels, and that's okay, because that's not how the law applies to us today. But the general principle of this law is still true, isn't it? God still sets his people apart, and he does so in visible ways. We still have visible markers that God uses to distinguish his people. The sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world. And they engage us in service to God through Jesus Christ. That's language taken right out of the Westminster Confession of Faith on the sacraments. The church remains, you see, the church remains a holy people a kingdom of priests, and we still have visible signs meant to distinguish God's people from the world. And and that fundamental identity reminds us of our call to be different, to be different from the world. We're still called to know what an abomination is. We're still called to not call good evil and evil good. But that's not all. I don't think that's all we're meant to see as we look at these laws for life. We are also, I think, ultimately meant to see the one who is life himself. We can't forget the words of Jesus who said to his contemporaries in his day that you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me, about me. You see, in these seemingly odd laws, with the eyes of faith, we behold Jesus. We see his character. We see who he is. After all, it's not insignificant that in the Gospel of Luke, we read about an occasion when a helpless and needy woman reached out to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment, and she was immediately healed. Jesus is the promised one who came with healing in his wings, Matthew, Malachi 4.2. Deuteronomy, we've seen, requires every home builder to take precautions so that their home is a place of life where people are kept safe. And this is precisely what Jesus has done as the master builder through his death and the resurrection of his body, which is the true temple, which is your true home. Jesus is the true and righteous builder, and he is the one who spares no expense to make his dwelling place a place of safety and security for all those he welcomes in. Jesus told his disciples just before his death. You remember, if I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. No one enters the Father's house except by him. The laws of life in Deuteronomy require kindness to be 
shown to all of God's creatures. And who spoke more about little tiny birds than Jesus? He's talking about birds all the time. It's as if Jesus is Yahweh who wrote the Torah, who gave the law to Moses, because that's precisely what happened. What did Jesus say? Ego eimi, I am. I am. And what did I am say? He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. God keeps his own laws. He pays attention to the little things, to the little ones, to little creatures, to tiny sparrows. Notice it's not that the birds don't matter. It's not that God doesn't care about the birds. It's that you matter even more to him. That's Jesus' point. We're supposed to care for little tiny creatures. We're supposed to care for birds. How much more then should we care for one another? How much more should we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more confident should we be too that God will take care of us? If he feeds the little tiny birds. Notice it's not that the, the birds don't matter. Jesus is teaching us a different lesson. And likewise, Jesus, I'm just going to say one or two sentences about this. Jesus upheld and honored sexual distinctions. Saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And finally, to bring things full circle, no one has ever fulfilled the requirements of the law to restore things that have been lost or injured more than Jesus. What did the Son of Man come into the world to do? The Gospel of Luke says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, verse 10. All we like sheep had gone astray. I want to just read to you a, a quote from B.B. Warfield as we wrap up here. Pay attention. Listen to what he says here. This is B.B. Warfield. He who was in the form of God took such thought of us that he made no account of himself. Into the immeasurable calm of divine blessedness he permitted this thought to enter. I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal the divine purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed our needs, our misery, our helplessness, if I can put it this way, our donkiness in the ditch. He made no account of himself. God, as he took the form of a servant and humbled himself to lowly obedience, even unto death, and that the death of the cross. That's B.B. Warfield, apart from the donkey thing. Here in the death of Christ, we meet the Lord of life. Here in the death of Christ, we discover eternal life 
bursting forth, we discover a creator who so loves his creation that he's willing to stoop down and get into the ditch to lift us up out of the the mire in the pit that we had thrown ourselves into. Here we discover the one who goes after and seeks lost sheep and brings them home. And so let all things their creator bless and worship him in humbleness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to believe in Jesus' name, for in that name we have eternal life. Amen. Now let's uh, let's.